from high above historic Belfont, and still in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, the podcast that's mostly about food and drink in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode 25 plus, our first bonus episode. More rye whiskey, more Colorado, and a little Virginia. As always, you'll find pictures to go with this episode on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass. Might as well hit the follow and like buttons while you're there. There's also a link to my coffee page where you can drop a few bucks to help keep this going. And if you've already donated, thank you. If you like the show, it only takes a moment to give us a boost. If you find a place because I mentioned it on the show, please let them know you heard about it on Seen Through a Glass. It really helps get the word out. As I always say, tell your friends. And I've got a new way you can do that. I put together a one-minute video, also available as audio where you get seen through a glass, about the show. What we do, where we're from, and how to listen. Perfect for sharing with your friends. Just search Lou Bryson on YouTube. It's called Got a Minute? Copy the link and send it to anyone you think might enjoy the show. But the easiest thing you can do to help? When you're done listening to this episode, just take a moment and leave a rating, or even better, a review. The more reviews and ratings we get on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, the better we do on search results, and the more people will find the show. Thanks for your support. On to the episode. And we are back in only a week with the first Scene Through a Glass bonus episode. I've got the second half of my interview with Todd Leopold, some notes on places we went to eat and drink on the trip, including top-notch barbecue in Kansas City, then a visit to Sam's Number 3 in Denver, and some events I've got coming up in Lancaster and Baltimore. If you haven't had a chance to hear the first half of this interview, you'll probably want to do that to put it in context. I sat down with distiller Todd Leopold of Leopold Brothers in Denver, who turned the rye whiskey world on its ear a few years ago with his rediscovery of the three-chamber still. The interview went for an hour, so I split it and created this bonus episode. In this episode, Todd and I talk more about the three-chamber still, and then we move on to the Maryland-style rye he made and what he thinks about that style now, and some of the other things they're making. We'll get to that shortly, but Leopold Brothers wasn't the only distillery I visited in Denver. After the interview, I drove across town to Law's Whiskey House. They told me about where Colorado farmers grow the grain for their whiskeys, and it was a great story about fashion shows and women farmers. They also gave me a bottle of their rye, and it only seemed fair to go back to Dave and Rich, the guys from my local whiskey club who tasted the Leopold Brothers whiskey last week, for a shot at this one as well. So let's have a listen to what we're drinking today. Hey, I'm here with Dave Dries and Rich Gallup again. We are members of the uh, the whiskey club here in the in uh, beautiful Peds Valley <laughs> and uh, we are tasting today two whiskeys from Law's Whiskey House in Denver that I brought back from my recent trip I have a um, seven-year-old bonded rye San Luis Valley rye and then I have the standard expression uh, it is a San Luis Valley straight rye whiskey at least two years old the bonded, of course, is at 100 proof. The uh, straight that we're going to be tasting second is at uh, 95 proof, 47.5%. Uh, so, Dave, 
Lou, great to see you again. Thanks for bringing more whiskey, man. I <laughs> much appreciate it. Absolutely. Rich, you ready to drink some whiskey? I do believe I am. <laughs> All right. So we've already poured the uh, bonded. I, you know, we maybe we should have started with the other one, but I just didn't want to wait. <laughs> I wanted to taste this sucker. So here we go. And by the way, as we noted earlier before we uh, started recording, the color on this is much darker than the the two year old. There's a lot of difference there. Wow, you can really taste smell the wood on that. You can. Don't wait on me. Go ahead. What are you getting? Mm, it's just got some really nice spice right up front there. Mm-hmm. Sweeter than I expected. That's tasty. It is. Yeah, that's uh, that's easy to drink. It is really easy to drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this is not hot at all. Mm. It's kind of bright and clean on the nose there, but that palate just it hangs on a little bit. It broadens just... a bit in the back. I mean, it is it is very very bright, but then it kind of just spreads out and gets sweet in the end, and then the wood comes in. I mm. like that wood. That's yeah, yes. good. Yeah, kind of firming things up. Wow, it really works well on the nose. It does because I'm getting the um, the rye. Like mostly spice, but a little bit of uh, uh, like a kind of peppermint. But the wood is right there. There's a hint of sweetness on that too. Mm -hmm. Really getting more wood than I did with the um, the six year old three chamber we did before. I think that has an awful lot of its own that the wood doesn't. That's possible. Add that much or. It's not as noticeable. It's not hitting it yet. Yeah. Hmm. I thought it was interesting. He wants to keep that going for a few more years. Mm hmm. See where that goes. Getting that subsequent sip in there, there's a little bit of dried fruit there, too. Yeah. On the edge of it. Yeah. Mm. And maybe even a little, um, I don't want to say biscuit or cake, but something. Yeah. yeah more, than, more than just like sweet juice, more like a sweet. Dough. Or dough there. And yeah. Nice, round, full flavor. Mm. Yeah, I'm not really finding flaws. No, and it's definitely not hot. It just no, lays there very nicely. It's nicely rolled whiskey. <laughs> All right, let's try this little brother here. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> Synthcourt. <laughs> so this is uh, from a, a four-bottle... Uh, 100 milliliter set that Laws sells uh, with their um, four grain bourbon, the San Luis straight rye, wheat whiskey, and a malt whiskey that they do. Um, all four of them are in there. It's a, a sample so you can get a taste of what they do with this stuff. You know, when you get it in a bottle or a glass that's the same size, there's not that much color difference. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's a little bit lighter, but not a lot. You're right. Oh, wow. Much Completely sweeter. different nose. Yeah. yeah. That's almost like burnt sugar. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Little marshmallow over the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely a little burnt marshmallow there. Oh, wow. That's so different. Still very tasty. Yeah, but in a, in a completely different way. Yeah, again, not finding, not finding flaw here, just different i mean not even sure i'd 
put my finger on it being younger if I if I didn't know better. I mean, the the oaks. It, not it's surprising there that there's five years of age difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would have guessed less. One of the beauties of rye. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Young rye. Mm. Yeah, you. And there's a lot going on there. If you were blind tasting this, you would not put them up as big brother and little brother. No, <clears throat> no. Mm. It's not quite as full of a flavor, but and it doesn't linger quite as long. But it's no. still very, very tasty. I get a big difference. Like if I take a sip and just hold hold it in my mouth with my lips closed, and then swallow it, that first rush of air in really changes things. Yeah, because when it, when I'm tasting it just with my mouth closed, I'm mostly getting that sweet burnt sugar marshmallow, and then when I open it, I get that a rush of spice and even a little. Um, Wow, kind of grassy note. Yeah, a little yeah. herbiness. Yeah. It's getting the sides of my tongue. On the sides. Exactly. Go, go back. back to the other one. That's yeah, go cool. back to the other yeah. one. <laughs> wow. The nose is so different. That seven years is just a lot more complex. Yep. Yeah, the oak adds a lot. And I, 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 would, I would say it's taken away some, too. You know, maybe like, I don't know, what, like... Sorting through a deck and taking out some of the cards. Yeah, and shit gets absorbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot less of that burnt marshmallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not getting that on the first one. That's pretty good. I don't mind either one. No, no, I um, I have to admit, I kind of want to drop a cube in the seven year old. <laughs> see how that holds up. We might do that later. Okay. <laughs> um, even just a dash of water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, you know, I'm here. I got water. Yeah. Do, 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 do. I might have to. A little water in the old Glencairn glass. Mmm. Oh, oh, man, now I am getting a little bit of marshmallow. Mm-hmm. Right? Definitely. Yeah. Hello, old friend. That just really changed it a lot. Yeah, it did. It does change it significantly. Yeah, yeah. I love this. This is the that whole proofing thing. Water doesn't dilute whiskey. It hides stuff. It brings stuff out. Um, well, I mean, it does dilute it too, but... <laughs> <laughs> can make mm. it better. Yeah, yeah. Skillfully done. I assume that's what you're asking. Yeah, I've... Yeah. I've Little over overdone on the water. You want to want to bring well, it back I, up? I, yeah, I didn't have much in my glass when I added water. Oh, okay. And yeah, there's still just needed a little bit more to. Yep. Not have it quite so diluted. Yeah, the water does definitely bring out a little more subtle sugar. Yeah. Just softens it. Are you trying it with the younger one now? Yeah. <laughs> See what happens. I have to admit that seven year old is. Very, very tasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would not find mind finding that in my Christmas stocking. <laughs> that marshmallow is still right there. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't anything going to blow that away. So this is all the One Valley's worth of rye. One farm. One in, farm. In the San Luis Valley, yeah. Um, and they've been working with them from the start. I think, I want to say they opened in 2011. So, you know, this is one of their... 
first batches, but it's going actually with rye, it may well be because they started doing bourbon first. So, uh, I always enjoy drinking whiskey with you, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Rarely disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I have been lucky. So, all right. Um, thanks, guys. It's been appreciate a it, Lou. It has been a pleasure. Good time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Two good whiskeys. Surprisingly, not all that similar. More about Law's Whiskey House after the second half of the Todd Leopold interview. Part of this section of the interview is going to be about Maryland Rye, the elusive, much-discussed cousin of Monongahela Rye. Is it a real substyle of rye? Depends on who you talk to. The advertising of the pre-prohibition and immediate post-repeal eras certainly seems to say so, as do strong supporters of current Maryland distillers. On the other hand, once you get into the weeds and look for distinct differences, documented differences, it appears that, like the Monongahela Rye distillers, the Maryland distillers did not have a uniform process, not one thing that you can put your finger on and say, this, this is the difference that makes it a Maryland rye. My friend, amateur whiskey historian Sam Kumlenik, likes to complicate the issue by pointing out that some Maryland distillers also bought a lot of rye whiskey from Pennsylvania distillers, carloads of the stuff. Actually, Sam doesn't like to point that out. He does it with relish and glee. Todd made a Maryland-style rye at Leopold Brothers. What it was, and what he thinks about that now, is a good chunk of this second half of our interview. So let's get at it. I had this as a question, and it just seemed ridiculous at this point, but I'll, I'll read it so we can both laugh. <laughs> uh, is the output of the three chamber still, has it been different enough to justify the experiment? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. But No, but that, that's an important question, right? Important because question. because that, understand that would have been a total failure. If we went to all of this trouble and you could not tell the difference between, exactly. uh, my brother would have strangled me in the bathwater. I would have been in so much trouble. Um, because nobody would, would have, would have cared, you right. know, what difference is it? So I, I had to have faith. I came along the, the concept of the still about 15 years ago and I was far enough along in my career and my experience. And I happened to be the right person to get, I think anyways, get his hands on this document because I have a background in malting, because I have a background in brewing, and that I could look at what this was from a different perspective. And if I would have come across it from the perspective of a distiller, I'm not entirely sure I would have understood it. So I feel kind of, you know, I'm certainly not a predestination or, or, or you know, guy. Things happen, but things happen, yeah. and, and I and I think it was nice that it that it fell into my lap. I was lucky enough to have a brother who believed in me, which was the really important part. And you know, one one of the things that 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 I take very seriously. I don't take myself seriously. Everybody will will tell you, you know, we're a bunch of eighteen year old kids running around. We're kids in a candy store. We can't. Yeah. We can't. None of us can believe we get to do this for a living. By the way. We feel we all feel very fortunate, you know. Danny says that all the time after he's just moved twenty thousand pounds of grain, and you know, giving me a pat on the shoulder and saying how lucky he is to be able to do that, you know, because it's his kiln. I'm like, you tell me what flavors do you want to get? What kind of whiskey do you want to make? And what I was getting at is, 
we're lucky enough to, I'm lucky enough to be a distiller that owns the distillery. Mm. And, and as a result, I have an obligation, you know, to the people, you know, not just in our industry, but all of them. Not everybody gets creative freedom. Right. And I have it. And I would, what a horrible thing would it be if I just made the same stuff that everybody else was making with Every that, day. with that freedom. Yeah. And instead I feel an obligation uh, to explore and with the three chambers still, you know, it, it's it, other people ask me, you know, what are you putting other things in the three chambers still? And of course, <laughs> I quietly with a smile nod and say, you bet. And you know why? <laughs> because you expect me to do that. <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, absolutely that, that, we that, do. That, you know, the long and the short of it, the, the simplest way to, you know, to, to, you know, get to why we put the three chamber in I wanted to taste the whiskey. Mm. That was it. That was the driving force. I wanted to, you kept reading about this and how the whiskey was so different and it's not the same. And you get stories of the accountants coming in and, and making decisions for the distillers and it's pissing off all the old curmudgeonly distillers and the, you know, very famous, it's a Weller sign, no chemists right. allowed, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think chemistry is important too, but... Sure. but the point that they're, you know, that they're making is, is to allow the distillers to distill and they know how to make the best whiskey. And a lot of this is tradition and practical knowledge and being able to look in an open fermenter and say, those bubbles look wrong. Right. Todd, these bubbles don't look right. Now, you know, that, that, that's just experience and, and, and you know, know-how that we've acquired, that we've been lucky enough to acquire because we make our own malt. That makes us better distillers without any question whatsoever because we have an understanding of malt and these raw materials that other people simply don't have. And we feel incredibly lucky to be able to do it. And uh, I'm absolutely delighted with how it came out. And I'm excited for people to taste what we have sitting in barrels that they're not going to get their hands on for five to ten years. <laughs> it's pretty exciting stuff, I think. So you had mentioned something earlier we were uh, walking around the distillery. You say you consider it. Um, I think you said your your duty to find new ways to make whiskey, uh, even if that means going back to old ways. Yeah. Um, so taking that and uh, and something we just briefly touched on through this, what is the historical basis for Maryland rye? Is it a <laughs> distinct kind of whiskey, and how much overlap is there with Monongahela? Well, <laughs> this is kind of a, you know, a, a very fun thing for me because, because, you know, I just talked to a room full of people, both in New York and uh, Washington, D.C., where they're telling me what they think Maryland rye is. And I'm chuckling because I'm like, that's my, that's my copy. So in other words, I wrote that down. <laughs> You're telling me what I told you it was, Right. <laughs> So the, so the Maryland rye, when we, when we uh, came up with the idea, I think it was about 12 years ago now, and there weren't any distilleries in Maryland. Yeah. And as you know, I've been researching these old stills and these old distilleries and how they make things in Baltimore Pure and you know, distilleries in Dundalk, distilleries all over the state. They were very proudly making rye whiskey. Well, I thought, what well, you know, first of all, you know, what a pity that these Maryland distilleries aren't making them anymore. But then I went down the rabbit hole of, uh, of just like everybody else does, of, okay, well, what the hell does that mean? Is Maryland rye an actual thing? Mm -hmm. 
And what are the, the mothballed samples that I got a hold of and talking with Charles Cowdery and Michael Veach and some of the other historians at the time, the consensus I was getting is, is that it tended to be a bit more on the fruit side. One of the things that on the fruity side, go, leaning into fruit, le- leaning into floral and pulling back on the spicy notes. And, and okay. I know how to you know, do that, playing with the, what kind of rye you use, what kind of yeast you use, no problem. I can do that. Sure. And... Michael Veach, uh, one of his theories about Maryland rye is that it may have been the blenders that were doing it and that they were adding fruit back in those days. So even to this day, as you very well know, bourbon is protected. You can't add anything to it. Rye mm, right. has no such protections, <laughs> and you still have it in the CF, the Code of Federal Regulations, that you can add up to 2.5% harmless flavorings and colorings. Yeah. And I can show you old blenders manuals where they were adding black tea or plum juice or fig juice or all of these things. And they were doing it in small enough amounts that, that you couldn't tell. So it wasn't really, they weren't making flavored whiskey in my, in my opinion, any more that, any more than sherry uh, butts are making scotch flavored whiskey, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. In these small enough quantities, that it, the way I look at it is a way for a blender, if you're adding 2.5% black tea to a rye whiskey, you can give your whiskey a house note while kind of changing the sources from where you're getting the barrels from. If that makes sense. Okay. So that's kind of how I look at it. If I'm in the, in the, in the shoes of a blender back then and looking at it. So that was his supposition. Maybe they were adding fruit to it. And that was part of the profile. I decided I didn't want to do that. But the, the overarching goal that I was trying to do was give a nod to these glorious distillers that disappeared and <coughs> give a place for it to live on the shelf. So that in my mind, I was positioning and helping to talk to the consumer the same way you would with saying what high rye bourbon is. Mm -hmm. So Maryland rye, in my mind, emphasized the floral, emphasized the fruit, pulled back on the spicy, and Pennsylvania was the other way around. The truth of the matter is just the same as West Coast IPA. Does every single IPA made on the West Coast taste like that? No, of course not. So as people are digging more, and I, I think Clay Risen did a nice piece for the Times on the subject and some of the other discussions I've seen, there really is no such thing because... As Maryland Rye. As Maryland Rye, because they all use different mash bills, as far mm-hmm. as I could tell. So they all use different mash bills. Some had corn, some didn't. Some use three-chamber stills, some didn't. Some use three-chamber in columns. Oh. So it was all over the place. Right. In... So it doesn't really mean anything at all. And so I've had fun conversations with, you know, the good people at Sagamore Spirits. And as they're running through what they're doing for their bottled and bond and more of their whiskeys as they're, as they're releasing what they're making in-house and using local grains, the Maryland distillers have it well at hand. It's whatever the hell they say it is. And what my opinion is, is completely irrelevant. <laughs> but understand, looking back at the time, they didn't exist when I did this. <laughs> so, yeah. it, so it was trying to, it was a head nod. It was trying to, to, you know, recreate something that was a little bit lost and put my own interpretation on it. And anybody that asked me, all I'm doing is giving my opinion. Um, you know, I will say that it, it, 
another thing that we do that was a, a nod to those days was our entry proof. Um, all of our whiskeys are in at 50%. And in that Crampton and Tolman piece, that was the standard. All 31 uh, distilleries were in at 50 or really? 50.25, every single one of them. Huh. All of them. Okay. And what's nice is, as my career has gone along, self-appointed whiskey experts who have come visit, come to visit me have stopped making fun. <laughs> that, that like I, you know, <laughs> they, they're looking at me like, you have no idea what you're doing. And it's like, look, I understand I'm not Freddie No. I, I'm not a well-known name. You have no idea who you're, who you're talking to, but believe it or not, <laughs> um, I, I'm not working from nothing right. and from nothing here at, at all, but uh, it's good. It, it's, uh, it's, it's good that you don't take what it is that we do here seriously. I think we're all very proud of, our, of what we do in our industry, but we're not saving the whales. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a firefighter. <laughs> so yeah. I think, it, it, you know, part and parcel, you know, of this and, and having people coming to bourbon and people, people coming to whiskey that are brand new at it aren't going to understand a lot of what we do here. And they don't have the context that you do where we started with gin and beer and, and you know, that we've been at this for 24 years and may have picked up a thing or two in the time that we've been operating but I still think that we're in a very, very good place, and it's fun to see all of these distilleries that are making all different things. It's nice that there are distilleries now again in Maryland and distilleries in Pennsylvania, and that these distilleries, you know, Stoli and Wolf chasing down the original Rose and Rye. Right. And working with some of those old master distillers to, to, to acknowledge all the beautiful work that, that, that they've done I think in the end, most distillers that I know, especially the ones, you know, the Alan Bishops of the world, really, you know, over at Spirits of French Lick, really revel in the fact that we're just another guy on the rope pulling. But it, but it's a very, very, it's fun to be a small part of that continuum and that tradition of these ways of making whiskey where in one generation it went from an agricultural practice and a local practice uh-huh. into an industrialized practice in one generation because of two things. The first thing was prohibition, obviously. Mm. The second, second thing I think people leave out is that we got out of prohibition during the Great Depression where nobody could afford any of these things. Who the hell can afford a three-chamber still in 1934? Right. I feel very lucky to, to have the tools to bring some of these practices back. Last question, and this was something we discussed early on when we discussed it. I told you I was going to ask this, and I just kind of prepare you. Sure. There are, um, my wife is retired now, but she was a, a scientist, a biologist. So when you do an experiment, you usually change one variable. Your whiskey has the three-chamber still. It has the Abruzzi rye, the heirloom. But you're doing it at high altitude. You're doing a lot of your own malting. Which of those, well, no, I shouldn't put it that way. How big are these factors in your eventual whiskey? They are all important. Okay. And it's why it was so terrifying to do it. <laughs> because I'm, re- you know, I'm realizing as I was going further along that more and more distillers are paying attention to what it was we're trying mm-hmm. to do. So understand from where I sit, how many chances I had to make a horrible mistake and make a garbage whiskey. It was terrifying. Yeah, not a it lot. Was, it was terrifying. 
So everything that, that I did, choosing the Abruzzi rye that, that you mentioned, the whiskey would have been totally different if I used a modern rye mm -hmm. to the point, and my brother happily was good enough to respect that, um, the Abruzzi rye, because it, it's an older seed, it's much taller, and the, the uh, you know, kind of get into, you know, you know plants and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Norman Borlaug was the guy who took the rye and turned it into dwarf size, uh, right? Which so made it, it fall over so, so it wouldn't fall over, so it wasn't yeah. as susceptible to, to weather conditions and save millions of people from starvation. So the plants that we're using are, are predate that, mm. and so I got a I had a picture on a Friday from our, uh, our farmer in Longmont, Paul Schlegel, who's just wonderful. He's been, um, by the way, shout out to Coors. Oh. The Coors family is the reason we have world-class grain farming in Colorado. So everybody else that's trying to use local grains is, has to start their ecosystem from scratch. Paul Schlegel can grow any seed that I ask him to grow in his sleep. And as I start to, to I'm embarrassed that I did this to him, I start to say, look, I'm looking for low moisture content, low nitrogen, you know, I'm starting to tell him what I'm looking for. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, I got it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and it's because he's standing in front of this 35-year-old kid, or however old I was when I asked him to do that. I guess that's about right. Um, you know, how to grow his grain. And he's used to dealing with the Coors family, whose standards are much more stringent. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I was able to take, you know, USDA seed bank seed and say, mm -hmm. here, step this up. And now we're doing several hundred thousand pounds of it. But he sent me a picture on a Friday and it had all uh. fallen over. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I'll never forget. I sat with my brother going through all of this stuff. And it's like, all right, we're switching to single malt. We, did, we, we were uh, <laughs> because I told him, I said, He's like, will the whiskey be different? I said, entirely different. This was two years in to, yeah. to the three chamber project, and, and I said it won't it won't be the same. But and the reason is that modern the modern varieties that I can pick up the phone and buy instantly, they're eighty percent starch. The Abruzzi rye, depending on the crop year and of course where you grow it and all that, sixty sixty two percent, totally different. So yeah. as a result of that. You know, you know this, when you're making a recipe as a brewer or distiller, you're not weighing out pounds of grain, you're weighing out pounds of starch, which yes. is the same thing as pounds of sugar. Yeah. How much are you feeding to the yeast is what's going to dictate how much alcohol there is. And 62 versus 80%, basically I'm adding 20% more grain, which means I'm adding 20% more flavor and aroma to the whiskey right out of the gate. And then you add in the fact that that Abruzzi rye, that extra 20%, that has more linalool and more of everything than the stuff that's at 80% starch because they, the starch doesn't have flavor. Yeah. So I'm picking a more flavorful grain that I need to add 20% more of. So it makes the whole whiskey bigger. It makes me happy to, to, to hear that you understand that. I had no, nobody to call. Who the hell am I going to uh, call? Yeah. yeah. Who's going to help me? I had to pick the entry proof. I had to pick the char, which was terrifying, which was absolutely terrifying. And I could, you know, do a rain. You know, there's a million different ways I can do it. I can use five different yeast strains and blend it downstream. I can, you know, there's all of these different permutations that I could do. But I was happy with the yeast that we were using. I was happy with the fermentation, how many days, 
you know, using that 20% floor malt and how I was handling the floor malt. And that 20% that adds a honeyed note that I just adore in all of our whiskeys. Other people will say, well, this doesn't taste like Kentucky whiskey. And it's like, well, yeah, it's, you're, <laughs> you know, well spotted. You're right. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, the Kentucky distillers have already perfected that and are making world-class beautiful whiskeys. And I'm making it for three times the price that they charge. So you want me to make their whiskey only more right. expensive doesn't make right. much sense it to makes me. makes no sense. But it, it, it's gratifying when I do talk to other stillers who understand. I mean, really, the reality is it was a really stupid thing to do. It really, truly was. It, <laughs> it was incredibly expensive. Right. And it's not just people just stop at the still. It's like the still isn't the big price tag. We've got millions of dollars of grain and labor and electricity and water and, you know, the land we had to buy. And it's all sitting there evaporating. And I have no idea how anybody's going to react to it. So yeah. I'll never forget sitting out. I was sitting outside with Danny, who we saw earlier. <clears throat> and we're sipping on the whiskey when I decided, okay, we're going to start to send this stuff out to people to see what they think to some peers and wonderits and some other folks. Um, See what to see what they think uh, on it, and either you and I are going to have the best retirement ever and have hundreds of these beautiful whiskey barrels to choose from, you know, or, or we're not going to have made enough of it. Yeah, and, and and happily it was the latter, and um, and then of course the collaboration came along as well, and and some of the whiskey goes to that, but it it was it it. There were definitely some sleepless nights. When Freddie No came to visit, you know, I think that he came like I think in year three. And he's like, I want to see the three chambers still. And I'm, of course, thinking to myself, how the hell do you know about the three chambers still? Because <laughs> I wasn't really talking too much about uh -huh. it at the time. And I can't remember if there were any pieces about it. But um, And when he left and I told my wife who that was and what generation he was and all that, and as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, oh God, I'm gonna, if this doesn't work and everybody hates it, I'm gonna be that weird guy <laughs> who made, what was it, a nine chamber still or some crazy thing, and the whiskey was awful. And um, so, it, you know, it was stressful, but I think in the, in the end, it's been very gratifying talking with, I was just talking to a former uh, production manager from the Middleton Distillery, and he was just, very, very kind in his words, not just about the finished whiskey, mm -hmm. but absolutely curious to understand how it worked. And uh -huh. so I was just in New York at that Flaviar event uh -huh. and talking to talking to distillers about it. And it's, you know, it's nice that word has traveled overseas and that the other distillers are, are paying attention to what we're doing. And of course, the long term hope is we're not the only one who does this. But as you know, at first we were very hush hush about it because we wanted to be first to the market. As we started to get further along, I started to realize how crazy it was that we did this, and that you know who's going to want to spend this kind of money <laughs> to put a still in? Because again, they have to start from where I did, yeah. where they don't know which you know they don't know where to cut. They don't know where to, they don't know how to run the still. Yeah. They don't know what yeast to use. They don't know what barrel to, you know, they, all of these things, of course, are moving parts. So you can't just use a formula for it. 
and I'm realizing, you know, that barrier to entry is crazy. And then even still, the still that I have, you know, 20 feet tall and eight foot wide, and it only makes two barrels. Who the hell is going to invest in something like that? So if somebody wants to do one that's on a bigger scale, it's even more money and more risk. Right. And if you want to go on a smaller scale where you're yielding so little, you know, if you can even hand, you know, feed your tasting room, that would be, you know, a thing. So we'll, we'll see. I know that a couple of still manufacturers are, are making them now, a mm-hmm. couple of smaller ones, which is exciting to see. It's also a little worrisome to me because, I mean, I've got safety fittings out the wazoo oh, on that thing and an awful lot of experience in handling it. So the vacuum fittings that we have on there, they're, uh, the vacuum and pressure, they're all redundant. And we took the vacuum relief from a company that makes them for railroad cars so that you can get a very, very high volume very, very instantaneously. And because the chambers aren't intuitive, there, when you're when you're having to, to to run the still, there are chambers that are under pressure that you think are under vacuum, and chambers that are under vacuum that you think are under pressure, and it's very counterintuitive. And there was more than a couple runs where I'm just sitting in front of it, go away. I need to sit in front of this and understand what it is I'm watching in the few, first few uh, months that we were running it. Yeah. You know, to understand what it was I was seeing. And of course, I got there, you know, I figured it out, and everybody was, you know, in one piece. And the very first day I ran it on a Saturday, so that I didn't have, you know, our our crew saying, Is it supposed to make that noise? And I have to look at them and say, I haven't the slightest idea whether or not I should be standing in front of here or you should run. So it's like, you know, if this, if something happens, it needs to happen to the old man. So I wasn't at all interested in having anybody else near that until I got a handle on it. I was fairly confident. Yeah. yeah but, but, you know, the, these are, you know, the one thing I've learned in my career with brewing and, you know, you've seen imploded tanks yes. and, and all sorts of things. This is no joke. I mean, people like to look at this as some sort of cutesy thing where you want to walk back there and flip flops and, hey, man, I'm making some whiskey. Uh, I certainly do not look at it like that, and we're very, very serious about safety. And the, yeah. the three chamber is no, no exception, and we're proud of the steps that we took to ensure that everybody goes home every day. So, yeah, big deal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's all I've got. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. I apologize as usual. I kind of go off on yeah, tangents. Well, and... you know, if I wanted to stop, yeah, I would have. Okay. <laughs> And that wraps up the Todd Leopold interview. It was a great time. It's a great hour of talking whiskey with a really good distiller. Thanks, Todd. This seems like a good time to remind you that I'll be speaking about world rye whiskeys at the 2023 Maryland Rye Revival in Baltimore on Friday, November 10th. I'll be there along with keynote speaker Clay Risen, a friend and an excellent whiskey writer, a bunch of distillers, another good friend and colleague, writer and winemaker Carlo DeVito, And yes, Todd Leopold. Could get interesting. Find more information and ticket sales at ryerevivalmd.com. That's R-Y-E-R-E-V-I-V-A-L-M-D.com. I'll be staying for Friday night's grand tasting, too. If you see me, say hi. Also, might as well tell you about another event I'm doing next week. I'm doing a whiskey talk and book signing at Stolen Wolf Distillery in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, a lot closer to much of central PA, on Friday, November 3rd, from 5 to 7. 
Best way to get into this ticketed event is to head to their Facebook page. That's Stoll, S-T-O-L-L, and Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. Hope to see some of you there. One more event. November 19th, Sunday afternoon, I'll be at the Dad's Hat Mill Street Tasting Room, just off the river in Bristol, Pennsylvania, just north of Philly. It's a long way for some of you, but I know you folks in Philly and New York are listening. This is going to be a fun event. We're going to be tasting beers and the various Dad's Hat Rye whiskey bottlings to help them pick a house boiler maker. I'll be talking about the fine art of matching whiskeys and beers, something I've given a lot of thought to. Probably be three to six, but watch the Dad's Hat Facebook page as we get closer to the day. I'll have books and maybe some podcast stuff. Maybe. Let's get back to the episode. As I mentioned earlier, I went to Law's Whiskey House after the interview with Todd Leopold. Laws has been making whiskey with Colorado grain from two Colorado farms since 2011, and they've only ever bottled their own make. Al and Marianne Laws had the vision to make their own whiskey, with their four-grain bourbon as the flagship, and they had the money to be able to make whiskey and age it till it was ready to sell. I've been sampling Laws whiskey since the first two-year-old spirit became available, and it's always impressed me, first as potential and now as solidly complete product. Laws embodies something I've always noted as an essential ingredient to excellent whiskey, beyond grain, water, yeast, the barrel, and that's the will to make an excellent whiskey. If you're not in it to make the best whiskey you can, why am I drinking it? There are three things I want to note about Laws Whiskey House. First, as promised last week, we talked about the effects of aging whiskey at 5,000 feet above sea level. Senior distiller Sam Poirier noted that it's not really the lower atmospheric pressure or even the lower humidity that he thinks makes a difference. It's the pressure drops, he said. The sudden movement of air masses off the Rocky Mountain front directly to the west of Denver can change their weather in a matter of minutes, and with that comes sudden, sharp changes in barometric pressure. Sam feels that the way those drops and rises slam the whiskey in and out of the staves and the barrels has an effect on how it ages. The second thing I found interesting about Laws was those two Colorado farms that are the sources for the grain they use. One of the farms is down in the San Luis Valley. The other is out on the Eastern Plain. The distillery has a tour that focuses on the details of their whiskey making, and the location of those farms is a big part of it. They have a relief map of the state in their tour room, and it was enlightening. The Eastern Plains are clearly enriched by alluvial deposits from the Rockies, with hundreds of square miles of prime grain-growing land. The San Luis Valley is higher, but surrounded by a mountainous wall that, to my amateur eye, looks as if it would hold in warmer air, and more of that alluvial runoff. It's a rich agricultural area. The map fascinated me. I'll post a picture of it, and you can see the San Luis Valley at the bottom and the wrinkled runoff to the right on the plains. Now, the last thing I wanted to note about laws is the proliferation of experimental whiskeys. We took a walk through their warehouse, and while there were a lot of barrels of their flagship four-grain bourbon and their rye whiskey, there were also, tucked in everywhere, small numbers of other things. There were whiskeys fermented with spontaneous yeasts, different strains of rye, different types of corn, different barrels. Distillers at Laws, and there is no master distiller, I'll nod to the fact that they're all still learning, get to make an experimental whiskey when they're ready, and it's a big deal. There aren't a lot of barrels of any of them, but there aren't meant to be. 
It's part of that learning process, almost like the racing program at a big auto manufacturer like Audi or Ford or Ferrari. You probably never drive that race car, but the next production model may well benefit from what they learned making it. Uh, much as I would have liked to stay and sample most of those barrels, I had to go. Honestly, I was kind of famished. Breakfast was hours and miles behind me. So I picked up Kathy and our niece, Evelyn, seeing Evie was the reason we went to Colorado in the first place, and we went into Denver for lunch at Sam's Number 3. If you haven't been, Sam's Number 3 is a diner, a bar, a Denver institution. They've been around since the 1920s, slinging omelets, burritos, burgers, and beers with hearty applications of their beloved green pork chili. The menu has a lot more than that, but I've never gotten past those standards. And so it was that day. Kathy got a whopping spinach omelet, the Popeye. Evie got, I think she got the Denver breakfast burrito with ham, onion, and green peppers, along with home fries and eggs, smothered in green pork chili and cheese. I got the basic Sparrows burrito, like Evie's, but without the ham and veggies. I also got a side of Tex-Mex red chili. Wow, we damn, that was some good eating. There wasn't a bite that was not delicious. Everything was ready to be devoured with glee. Yeah, it could have been spicier, but that's what hot sauce is for, and I did apply some. After a cooling beer, we walked back to the car and on to our next adventure. I dropped Kathy and Ev off so they could do some shopping, and I went about a mile farther to do some shopping of my own at Bierstadt Lagerhaus, a brewery that's become a Denver favorite of visiting brewers and beer writers because of their slow-pour pills. My oh my, this beer takes all of four minutes to pour a single glass, but when it's done, it's a sparkling cylinder of straw-spun gold to make Rumpelstiltskin jealous capped with a snow-white Frisian cap of foam, roundly layered and curling over at the top. It's beautiful, and it tastes as good as it looks. Dry, bitter, crisp, refreshing. I had them build me one while I was putting together a mixed case of cans to take home. Pills, Dunkel, Schwarzbier, and Doublebach. I got the call from Kathy to come pick them up, and we drove across Denver and up I-70 into the mountains to meet more of the family for dinner in the touristy, slow-paced streets of Idaho Springs. Eight of us sat down at Bojo's, which claims to have originated Colorado-style mountain pie pizza. Anyway, I think I have that right. Bojo's description <laughs> lays on the bullshit with happy abandon and a huge wink. I mean, a pizza recipe carved on a live box turtle shell that was lost for 75 years? Hats off to that tall tale. The Colorado pizza has a substantially thick crust that acts as a dam to hold in a gooey abundance of cheese, toppings, and sauce. There's warm honey served with the pie to dress the crust as a dessert-like finish. The ingredients, toppings, cheese, sauce, and such, are very good. The crust is a bit bland, but the honey dipping is fun. The problem I had was that it was too much stuff, and it didn't hold together well. I like a pie where everything holds together and I can pick it up without stuff sliding off the edge. I wound up forking it, which worked. It was a good time. It's good to see the family. Now, Evelyn lives up in Granby, over the Berthoud Pass from Denver, where she teaches preschool. And she's a ski instructor on weekends during the season. We stayed up there with her for five days. It was beautiful. The aspens were in full flaming yellow-gold color, and the lakes were beguiling. We got into Rocky Mountain National Park but we didn't get to see a moose. What we did do was get barbecue at a kind of hippie place called the Smokehouse down the road in Winter Park. It was damned good from the delicious, juicy smoked turkey breast Kathy got 
to the hot links and beans I got. Those beans were exceptional. The burnt ends were tasty, but a little overdone. I was going to get much better ones in Kansas City. The whiskey selection, though, was phenomenal. Here was this roadside barbecue joint on a two-lane road in rural Colorado, and they had the biggest selection of Whistlepig whiskeys I've ever seen anywhere. They had bourbons. They had rye. They had corn whiskey. I was shocked. I was also driving, so I got a draft glass of Odell 90 Shilling Ale and savored that malty goodness. After the last night out with Evan and roommate, drinking some pretty good beers and winning trivia at Vicious Cycle Brewing Company in Fraser, Colorado, it was time to head home. We were on the road at a frosty 7 a.m., down through the pass and across Colorado and Kansas. We drove 720 miles that day, straight to Q39 in Kansas City, a barbecue restaurant that my friends recommended. I won't make you wait. It was great. Q39 is table service, which is maybe not traditional for barbecue, but it sure worked for us. We were seated and being waited on in only a few minutes. Tristan was our guy, and I asked him what I wanted to order. Brisket, he said, and although I've said several times here that I'm not a brisket lover, I went with a brisket platter, five slices, and I added two ribs just to see what I was missing, sides of Mexican street corn and potato salad. We got a nap of burnt ends to start, and these were the real deal. About a dozen pieces, tender and sweet with meaty juices, with a sauce that was sweet without being gross. Truly surpassed any other burnt ends I've had. The brisket was wonderful, tender and massively flavorful. They might have converted me. The ribs were very good, and not fall off the bone, thank God. They had a bit of a bite to them. Gnaw off the bone, which I actually prefer. The corn was like a cheesy liquid corn pudding, very decadent. The potato salad was cold and crisp, eh, but a bit bland. Kathy got a platter of chicken and smoked chipotle sausage with pinto beans and apple slaw. The slaw was tasty, a bit sweet from the apple, and the pinto beans were lusciously soft, flavor-packed. The chicken was maybe overdone. It was soft, and there was no resistance to the bite. It was a poof. But that sausage, yes, sir. Spicy, garlicked, smoky, and snappy. Absolutely top-notch. We split a piece of carrot cake that was maybe a bit over the top, with gobs of warm icing over a still-cool cake. I'm a traditionalist here. I want a slice of chilled cake with icing in place. But I quibble. It was an absolutely excellent meal, with well-choreographed tag-team service, Made more enjoyable by a glass of Boulevard Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale, an outstanding beer, with a little bit of tart, a little bit of spice, and a whole lot of malt. And a KC Beer Pilsner, clean and bitter. Kathy had two glasses of a delicious Portuguese red blend, smoky and just a bit tannic. Great wine for barbecue. It was a very good trip, and I honestly enjoyed almost all the driving. We saw some gorgeous scenery, some striking scenery and an optimistically huge number of windmills cranking away the kilowatts. But yeah, it was good to get home and see Pippin and Nora. So good that we left again the following week. <laughs> we just got back from a long weekend in Cape Charles, Virginia, way down on the southern end of the eastern shore. It's a place we go every fall with Kathy's brother Carl and his wife Joan. We stayed, as we always do, at the Bay Haven Inn, and enjoyed sumptuous breakfasts there every morning. We had our usual happily informal dinner Friday night at the shanty with oysters and cocktails and beers. The next morning, we did a 10-mile bike ride along the Southern Tip Trail, 
and then drove the short distance to Stingray's, a gas station, convenience store, souvenir shop, and seafood restaurant. We feasted on excellent cornbread and seafood. I had grilled flounder. We lounged about a bit, got caught up, and then went for dinner at Ambrosia in Cape Charles. It was very much on point. This tiny, six-table Italian restaurant has never failed to wow us. As always, we had some of their house-cured Chirignola olives with focaccia. Meaty olives, not overly brined, just fantastic. We split a pickled vegetable platter and almost fought over the cipollini onions cooked in balsamic vinegar. So damned good. Kathy and I each got the diver scallops, and they were divine. Seared, but tender throughout, with exceptionally fresh and sweet flavor. Sunday morning, we rode our bikes around Cape Charles and picked up a pound of the huge steamed shrimp they have out at the beach market on the edge of town. We picnicked with that and our usually ridiculous spread of sausage, cheeses, crackers, tomatoes, peppers, and dips at the outdoor tables at Busky's Cider on the Bay. Mostly, we had their tart cherry cider, but I had a briskly dry glass of the Heritage Blend as well. As we strolled around after that, Kathy found a bottle of the Portuguese Red she'd had in Kansas City and bought it for later. Dinner? Dinner was leftovers from the picnic, back at Bay Haven, with an array of beer, Bell's Two-Hearted, Bull City ESB, some Trogue Sunshine Pilsner, and some of the new Glarus beers we got on the Colorado trip. Kathy and Jones split a bottle of Purple Cowboy Red Blend and loved it. Uh, We reluctantly left and drove home the next morning picked up Pippin, and went to our wine club meeting. I really have to slow down at some point. Well, there it is, your first bonus episode. Thanks again to Todd Leopold for the interview. See you soon in Baltimore. And thanks to Dave and Rich for braving the open mic to review whiskeys these past two shows. It's not so bad, right? Just about every poll I've seen shows stuffing as the most popular Thanksgiving side dish in Pennsylvania. I have no doubt that this is correct. Fight me. Remember, this was a bonus episode. We'll be back next week, Thursday, November 2nd, Kathy's birthday, with another brand new episode. It's a Thanksgiving special with lots of turkey talk, drinks tips for the holiday, sweet potato pie, and a special project to get almost everyone I interviewed this year back on the show to talk turkey. Actually, anything but turkey. You'll see. It's going to be fun. After that, there'll be one more episode on November 16th, And then I'm taking four weeks off, my first break in a year. Got to do Thanksgiving and hopefully move back into our house. Then we'll be back with the holiday show on December 14th. We're already working on it, and I've finally got Kathy helping me get organized, and we are kicking into high gear. Until then, thanks for listening. This is Lou Bryson on Scene Through a Glass from the smack dab center of the Keystone State.